Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm so glad that you are joining me today along with Dr. Peter Kapsner. We are going to continue our study of people from the Old Testament. We've been in this now for, I don't know, two or three months, and we're going to continue on for at least a year. And I know today is going to be an especially fun day for me, Peter. Don't uh, give any hints yet, but I want to make a couple (laughs) of bold statements, all right? Can I just make some bold statements? How about this? Bill Arnold is a really smart guy. (laughs) You can argue that? (laughs) <laughs> I have I have nothing to say other than that. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Because I've been saying that I'm going to interview Bill Arnold around here, and they're all looking at me like, "Oh, he's losing it." That's yeah, that's... and smarter than you might think. Bill Arnold is way smarter than uh, you might exactly. think. Exactly. Sure. Exactly. Then I kept saying I was going to interview Bill Arnold, and they said, "Oh, that just sounds made up or Russian disinformation or something." <laughs> so, uh, and I kept saying, "No, I'm going to bring him on the show." So he is uh, our special guest, Dr. Bill T. Arnold. I should make that distinction. He is the Paul S. Amos Professor of Old Testament Interpretation uh, at Asbury Theological Seminary. He joined the faculty in 1995, and he's also served as Vice President of Academic Affairs and Provo and Director of Postgraduate Studies. He is really smart, and I'm really glad to have him on. This is like checking off my bucket list. Bill Arnold gets to interview Bill Arnold. Bill, welcome. Thank you, guys. It's so great to be with you. And what a what a strange experience this is. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about it. So, did you, you have any? You must feel like you're in, in some sort of echo chamber or something. You're gonna, bouncing back and forth between Bill Arnold and Bill Arnold. I, I know. It's yeah, I have, absolutely, I have absolutely no idea how to address you guys today. None whatsoever. <laughs> and I used to uh, get notifications that uh, that Bill Arnold has been. Um, recognized again in another document. I'm thinking, who's ripping off my material? I didn't know. And then I realized it was you. So that was a fleeting thought, but uh, so nice to have you on. And so did you have any any nicknames growing up? Uh, Billy, perhaps, is a nickname. Maybe yeah, that was a Billy, too. Peter distinguish me. Okay, well, that's not going to help, is it? No, that's <laughs> not going to help either, right? <laughs> so... We'll just leave it at that then. So anyway, okay. we're uh, very excited to talk about Moses today with you, and you're going to take us on a little bit of a different journey uh, and some of the unique unique preparations Moses had to lead Israel out of Egypt. Right. I like to tell people I think that Moses was prepared like no one else could have been prepared uh, to lead Israel out of their bondage and their slavery. There's simply no way a human could have been prepared better than he was prepared. And uh, it's it's really amazing when you think about the, the beautiful passages in the book of Exodus that first describe him. So uh, let me just highlight, if we would start with there, the preparation of Moses for a couple of things. First of all, he was born into a tribe of service, into the tribe of the Levites, who, as you know and your readers know, later on became the priests of ancient Israel. And his brother Aaron, of course, was the first priest. Uh, and since Moses is anticipating his leadership in leading the Israelites out of Egypt by being born into the tribe of the Levites. But then secondly, he had this rather unique adoption, sort of an adoption, you know, into the Egyptian royal household. 
the Pharaoh's daughter took him in. He was actually raised, however, by his mother. So he had the best of both worlds. He had the education, the best education Egypt could provide. He sort of adopted an Egyptian identity, in a sense, by growing up in the royal court. And he had easy access to the royal court. But we also have reason to believe that he received his home education, his religious education, from his mother, who is named. We know her name is Yochebed. That's going to come up later in in our talk, I think. Uh, So all of this was critical to his success in leading Israel as the deliverer from their bondage and their slavery in Egypt. And then thirdly, there's just three points here. Born into a tribe of service, his unique adoption gave him opportunities he could never have had otherwise. And then his immediate passion for his people ran so deep. It was uh, instinctively, immediately obvious to him that one day he was out, you know, looking at the people who were enslaved, and he saw a Hebrew slave being beaten. And he just instinctively and also deliberately took action. And that was, in a sense, Moses doing what he was created to do and prepared to do, but of course he was doing it in his own strength, in his own timing. So he had problems, and maybe in a few moments we'll come to what some of those problems were, but prepared like nobody else could have been prepared to deliver them. And that's part of his calling, right? I mean, that's that calling, that preparation from his womb, from his mother's womb, was what made it possible for him to be the great deliverer of Israel from Egypt. That is so smart. That is something Bill Arnold would say. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a long hour. I can tell. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just so glad we're recording all of this, because I'll use this... Uh, but Peter, you go ahead. Yeah, no, Bill, I was just curious. Could you say a little bit more about just some of the preparation in the home in which he grew up? When you said that about just the, the prep with his mother, I was thinking about Eunice preparing Timothy. And I don't know how common it was mm. that young Jewish boys interacted with their mother as as sort of the historians of the faith or how they would have been raised. So I would love for you to comment a bit more about that. Well, it's fascinating that in that famous passage when he's put into the basket, you know, and Pharaoh's, wa- Pharaoh's daughter is there, and he sees her. She sees him, and he, she's immediately drawn to him. And she says, you know, wow, it'd be great if uh, if I could take him in. And then the Pharaoh's daughter sees a girl there standing, you know, and says, well, who who, who could help me raise this child? So we're told that the child's own mother is the one who raised him. So I believe that means that later on, at the burning bush when Moses heard the voice of God calling him into to go back to Egypt to save the people. I believe when he says, who shall I say is sinning? It's not as though he didn't know who Yahweh was. You know, God introduces himself as the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Well, I think Moses knew who they were. I think Moses knew that he was being, he was being confronted by the very God that his mother had trained him. To worship and to follow. But now he was going to encounter him in a different way at that burning bush. But it comes up in many different ways later on. You know, it's kind of a, her name is buried in one of the priestly lists later on in the book of Exodus. It's not given to us in the main narrative. But we know that that she was vitally important in raising him. So I, I believe this means that he was well-versed in the traditions of the fathers and so when he met God at the burning bush, you know, it was a revelation, but it was not it's something entirely new to him. Bill, I'd love for you to uh, back up a little bit and talk about some of the problems that you had referenced. Oh, well, 
So one day he's out, you know, he sees the slave and he kills the slave. It says the text says he looked this way and that way. That's a way of saying that he was very deliberate. He wanted to make sure it was hidden and nobody knew that he killed the Egyptian. So then he murdered the Egyptian to protect the Hebrew slave. So in a sense, he's acting out of the calling with which God has called him to do, but he's doing it in the wrong way, right? Mm -hmm. So the next day he thinks he's gotten by with it. And some of the other Hebrews the next day see him and say, oh, here's this guy. He thinks he's going to save us. You know, is he going to kill others? And he suddenly realizes, oh, this is not a secret. And it says he ran away. He was motivated by fear. So he was the most prepared any human being could possibly have been, but now he's driven by fear, and out of fear he runs away. And talk about problems. He makes other arrangements. I tell students, you know, this is what it means by making other arrangements. God has prepared Moses, he called him, prepared him, empowered him, sent him to, to a, on a mission, and now Moses is running for his life, afraid of what's going to be to happen to him when it's found out what he's done. And he goes to Midian, and you know the story. I, I believe your readers would know the story very well from Exodus 2, that there in Midian, he meets a man named Ruel. Ruel gives him his daughter Zipporah as a wife. They have a new son whose name is Gershom. Now, that's important because Gershom means a stranger in a foreign land. So Moses has a new family, right? He takes on a new occupation in Midian. Ruel is a shepherd. He has lots of flocks. So Moses becomes a shepherd in Ruel's household, and he now has a new home. He, he settles down with Ruel and Zipporah. It says there's one verse I love in Exodus 2, just in passing. Most of the translations miss this. It says that Moses agreed to stay with Ruel. But really, that verse, the nuance of that verse really is this. Moses was happy to stay with Ruel. He was very content to stay there. So he had a new wife, a new occupation, a new home. He was making his own arrangements. These are real problems when God has called you to do something entirely different. So good. Dr. Bill T. Arnold is our guest. And Bill, I don't know if you ever want to sub for me when I need to take a day off. It would make the transitions <laughs> really easier around here. Just... <laughs> no, man, I can't do what you do. You do it too well. I'm happy to do what I do. <laughs> Bill T. Arnold is our guest, and we're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the burning bush and with uh, Dr. Peter Kafter and I continue our hosting of, uh, of Old Testament characters. We're talking about Moses once again today. Be right back. Dr. Bill T. Arnold, so glad that he's able to join us today. Uh, Bill, just as I was reflecting on what we talked about the last segment, really amazing that God gave Moses a really huge job, but he really prepared him for it. Right. Let's be celebrating God. It's, I mean, any job we have, we should just be aware that God's going to get us ready for it. Well, that's, that's excellent. In fact, that's one of the first lessons. I want your readers to take away from this little time together, three lessons from Moses' life. And the first one is what God calls you to do 
God will prepare you to do, and God will empower you to accomplish. I, I, you mentioned that I teach in a seminary, and occasionally I'll have conversations with students who, who've you know left, they've moved to our campus, they've started seminary, and then they wonder, you know, they it's hard, and they don't know whether they're going to survive this or whether they can do seminary, and it all comes down to calling. I, you know, I explain to them if God's called them to this, God will empower them to finish it. And because a calling to ministry is a calling to prepare for ministry. So the, the first lesson for Moses' life is that what God calls you to do, God will prepare you to accomplish. The second lesson, and I'm going to give, them, give you these three things now, and we'll come back to them at the end of the study of Moses. The second thing is <laughs> there's no safe place away from God's call, and there's no safer place than in the call of God. So we're going to see with Moses' life that he thought he was finding a safety place. You know, he was running away to find a comfort zone, and boy, it just caused all kinds of problems. And yet what, what Moses later found out is that the best place to be, the safest place to be, is right in the middle of God's call on your life. And then the third lesson from Moses' life is kind of simple. Be prepared for surprises because <laughs> there were lots of surprises in Moses' future. Um, so, yeah, that, that's uh, that's just sort of the basic lessons from Moses' life that I think I would mention before we get into that discussion of the burning bush. Yeah, Bill, maybe you could just even say uh, a little bit more about that idea of living in the call, too, because I, I suppose one thing about the future is that it's always unknown, right? It's always filled with surprises, mm, right. as you said. It's always filled with variables. And so to have a sense of God's leading on your life, to, to know that he's led you in that direction into the unknown really is maybe the only way to have peace, regardless of whatever circumstances come. That's exactly right. Peace is the key, because we think we get peace by grabbing hold and trying to determine our future and make our own decisions, but we really have to let go of that. We have to be willing to be placed on, on the side to do whatever God calls us to do, even if that means being placed aside for God. Um, so it, we get in trouble when we try to make our own arrangements like Moses did and try to determine what our future will be. I struggled with this a lot as a young Christian. I was called into pastoral ministry, I thought, and I wanted to more or less control what that meant and how that looked. And <laughs> my big surprise was, oh, I'm I'm now an academic. I teach future pastors. So, you know, that calling can also evolve and change. But the key is to sort of relax and let that future be the future. Right. I just knew Bill Arnold was going to be successful. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> this is too great. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well we, if we head into the burning bush, I, that that part yeah. of the story, it's something we haven't covered yet in the past. And I'm wondering if you can kind of just give us a sense of what you see when you read that story. But also, too, if you have anything in terms of comments on God showing up as fire in the biblical text, where obviously mm. this is one of the places that he does, but as a pillar of fire or the fire at Pentecost, why this symbol or what do we see in that? Well, that's such a great question. That's Peter, right? Is that the, that wasn't Bill? That was Peter. No, that was Bill. That, Surprising, yes, that I know. Was Bill. That, was a very, that was a very smart question. I'm trying to figure out who this was. <laughs> no, if it was a smart question, it was Peter. <laughs> if it was a dumb joke, it was me. Uh, I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out fire. It's it's not only the burning bush, and I'll make a comment about the burning bush in a moment, but in Deuteronomy 4, when it's it's, it's explaining God's appearance to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. 
it says this. It says, what did you – it's trying to argue against idolatry. And it says, what did you see? Well, the answer was you saw nothing, but you heard a fire. It was kind of a weird thing. You heard fire. What, what voice mm-hmm. did you hear? Well, you heard a voice later on, but it was fire. You saw nothing. Therefore, idolatry is irrational. You can't make God at, into an idol because when you did see him, you saw nothing, but instead you heard a voice. The only thing they saw was smoke and fire, <laughs> and of course that comes into play in Pentecost. I think this is not a satisfying answer, Peter, but I think it's because in the ancient Near East and in Greco-Roman history, all the deities, every god, had his or her own habitat in the cosmos. There's the god of the sun, god of the moon, god of wind, god of storm, god of the water. They couldn't represent God, Yahweh of the Old Testament, in any of those things because if they did, they would limit him. And there were other aspects of the cosmos over which he had no sovereignty. Fire is somehow that thing (laughs) that is intangible and yet powerful and awe-inspiring, and so very often it is a fire. I think returning to the burning bush, I think it was an attention-getting device. It sort of – you know, it says he saw it, and he thought, wow, that's odd. It's not – the bush is not being consumed, and the text says he turned aside to see. I think he just wanted to see what was that all about? (laughs) Why is that bush not being consumed? But, of course, Mm -hmm. it anticipates God's appearance later on on the same mountain – in a column of fire, rising up to, as it says in Deuteronomy 4, rising up to the heart of heaven. Bill, would the fire have been uh, just an image of his holiness, or what would Moses have been thinking out of the general curiosity, like, i got to check this out, where didn't God say the place you're standing is holy ground, and it's it's warm? Right. (laughs) Right. <laughs> yeah, you can't get too close, and you also draw your sandals off because you're on holy ground. So, of course, it's associated somehow or other with the essence of God. I believe the holiness of God is not really an attribute. It's really the essence of God from which all the other attributes uh, draw from that fire, in a sense, that holiness. And it isn't, it isn't an accident, then, that Moses' first encounter with God is a fire at a bush where he's told this is holy ground, so draw off your sandals. Yeah. The, the other thing about the burning bush, and I have to get this in before we get too far. You know, I said before the break that Moses was finding his new comfort zone. He had made other arrangements, new family, new occupation, new home. The thing about being happy to live with Ruel in, in this new comfort zone, it was that he was far, far away from Egypt. He was far away from the Hebrews and their troubles. And it says, you know, in a sense, it doesn't say this, but the point is in that text is that he doesn't see their pain anymore. The reason he killed the Egyptian was because it pained him to see the Hebrew servant being beaten. So he doesn't see their pain, and he doesn't hear their cries. He's happy not to be around them anymore and to know. So he doesn't know about it. He's far away from it. And there's a paragraph at the very end of Exodus 2, which is, in my mind, one of the most amazing paragraphs of the whole Bible, where it says, right after it says, Moses is happy to, to dwell you know, with Ruel, it says, after a long time, the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. You know, Moses doesn't see them or hear them, but they're still there. They're still crying. And then the next part says, out of their slavery, they cried, the help rose up to God. And then it says, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, 
and God took notice of them. And in the original language, it, this is took notice is the NRSV. The original language is just he knew. God heard. God remembered. God saw. God knew. These are things that Moses was not doing. He didn't hear or remember or see or know. He didn't want to, but God did. And so I like to tell people this means that Moses and God are on a collision course. <laughs> Moses is about, about to meet an immovable object while he's out one day tending Ruel's flocks, you know, doing his new occupation. He's about to find out that God hasn't forgotten, and God does hear, and he sees, and he knows the pain of the Israelites. And that very thing for which Moses has been prepared and called, God's not going to let it go. He's going to confront him, and that's what the burning bush is all about. Bill, I've heard uh, I was I was under studying under a, a Jewish rabbi at one point on some of the stories of, of Moses, and he made the point related to the Israelites that they it says in the text that they were crying out, but that they weren't even specific about what they were crying out for anymore, and that the slavery was so brutal for the mm. Israelites at that time. And 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 he made the point of just saying we're increasingly it seems even as a society crying out, we hardly even know what for anymore, and just the need for a deliverance. So I, it seemed like that slavery was just way worse than maybe sometimes we get a sense of when we just read the story. Oh, that's right. That, that's a very good point. And it is true that it matches what's happening in culture today, not just in the United States, but around the world. I mean, the broken heart of Moses, when he saw it, you know, when he saw that Hebrew slave being beaten, it broke his heart and he took action, which later he, he regretted and he was afraid and he had to run away. But it's that passion that is a part of the calling. And that's true for Christians today. We, we see the broken world. It's got to break our hearts because it breaks God's heart. And it's part of our calling, right? I mean, this is what we're called to do, too. And the key is doing it in the timing and in the manner in which God has called and prepared us to do, not sort of doing it on our own or in our own strength. We have to do it uh, – I would say it this way. We have to do it through the church. The church is the one that gives us the, the right mechanism to address the pains of the world around us. And certainly this is part of our calling as it was for Moses. So good. Uh, Bill Arnold on the Bill Arnold Show. It just doesn't get any better than that uh, for me. Um, but he is Dr. Bill T. Arnold. And if you uh, um, know anything about him, I know some of you have his uh, commentaries on Old Testament study and you love it. And uh, so we're going to take a little break when we come back. Lots more on Moses. And Dr. Peter Kapster and I have been studying Old Testament characters for six weeks. We're going to go for at least a year. And if you have ever tried to download uh, the Faith Radio app and you've been successful at it, you know how cool that app is. Make sure you do that. It's a wonderful thing to have on your smartphone. You can go right to your app store and download My Faith Radio and check it out and have it on your phone because you will love being able to stream live right from your phone. We'll take a short break and be right back. Show with 
Oh, Bill, you got to be laughing at that, aren't you? I, I'm loving that. It's never been more true than today, right? <laughs> it's, ne- <laughs> it's never been more true. It's, it's like so, Bill Arnold squared. It totally is. And it's so weird to have a guest on the show named Bill Arnold, which makes me wonder what the last three numbers on the back of your credit card are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if you want me to stop right now, I'll no. be very quiet. <laughs> That's okay. We're so glad you could uh, be with us today. And we, we love As- Asbury Theological Seminary, where you are. Uh, we're hmm. huge fans of Keener. We've had him on a whole bunch. Oh, yeah. Good, good. Yeah, he's he's quite. A, talk about a smart guy. Yeah, that's a pretty smart guy for sure. Uh, so we've had Craig on before. We, I've had Tim Tennant on, another great guy. Uh, you just oh, good, yeah. just got some great guys there. It's really fun to to uh, have you on the show. Um, and you know, I I know you've prepared a whole bunch on Moses, and part of me doesn't want to ask questions as much as I want to get some more teaching because Peter and I <laughs> were just talking, uh, and we were saying we're hearing things that like we've never heard before. It's fantastic. Mm. Okay. And, I, you know, well, I, I host a radio show. Peter's a Ph.D. professor, so, I, you know, it's pretty exciting to be getting these fresh insights. Excellent. Well, shall we jump right back in now? Yeah, let's do it. Well, we were talking about, before the break, we were talking about the burning bush. And we'd mentioned that, you know, when he saw that, that fire, it caught his attention. He said, I think I'll turn aside to see. And the Lord said, no closer, take your shoes off. And he identified himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as I said, I believe that was really important to Moses because it brought back his lessons from his mother. And what then happened is kind of shocking. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses. This is chapter 3, Exodus 3, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry. So this is building on what that last paragraph of chapter 2. You know, God, God sees and he hears. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land of, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The cry of the Israelites says, now come up to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So far, so good, right? Mm-hmm. So far, as saying, oh, this is great, God. You go, God. This is great stuff. And then in verse 10, so come, I will send you to Pharaoh in order to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now, I think at this point, Moses stopped saying amen and started saying, wait a minute, what's this all about? In fact, if we have time in these few moments, let me summarize four objections. Now, you may have, your readers may have gone over this recently in another study, but I'd like to try to offer maybe, a, I hope, a, a unique way to think about these four objections in the text. The first objection is where Moses says, who am I? So that's in chapter 3, verse 11, if you're tracking. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Which is a natural response, right? We, we're standing before God, and we're being asked by God to go back and deliver a whole group of people from their bondage to be their savior, to be their deliverer. And he says, well, who am I? And the answer was really very profound. God says, well, I'll be with you. And I like to tell students, it's not as though God said, oh, but you're a unique, special creature created just for this purpose you're like a snowflake. There's no other creature <laughs> like you. You can, you can do It's not as though you know, God became a cheerleader and said, no, Moses, you can do this. No. He said, I will be with you, right? He said, you can go and you can do it because I will be with you. When I was a student, we had a, we had a professor who we thought knew everything about the Greek New Testament. 
I mean, it just seemed like he just had the whole New Testament memorized and he knew the grammar. And I remember another student saying, there's nothing that God and Dr. Dayton don't know together. (laughs) 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 I've often reflected on that and said, well, well, of course that was true. I mean, Bill, Bill Arnold, I can say this about you, right? There's nothing that you and God don't know. There's nothing that you and God can't do. It's true of you too, Peter, but we've been picking on Bill, so I thought I would So Moses says, who am I that I should go? And the Lord kind of says, well, yeah, right, Moses. It doesn't make sense, does it? But nonetheless, I've called you, and I will go with you. I will empower you. You can do this. Okay, that's the first question. Who am I? Second question is, and I'm going to skip over a lot of details, of course. Second question is, Moses says, well, who are you? You know, he says, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, this is verse 13, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So this is that famous passage where the Lord gives Moses his sacred name, Yodhavaveh, Yahweh, sometimes uh, translated Jehovah. There's a whole lot. There's a whole other show that you could do on this, Bill, because that's so profound, such an important moment in the Bible's revelation history. I'm just going to skip over that for a moment to say Moses knew instinctively that for ancient Near Eastern people, having the name of a deity gave you some hook into the character of that deity. Were they the god of the sun or were they the god of the storm? The storm, You know, it gave you some insight into the character of a god. And he knew that when he went back, the Israelites would say, well, well who is this god? But I like to say when he had said, who am I, and now he says, who are you, it's sort of a twist on that old famous book on transactional analysis. I'm okay. You're okay. It's like Moses said, I'm not okay, and I'm not so sure about you, God. <laughs> 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 so who am I, and, and who are you? So you say you'll go with me. Okay, who are you? And, of course, he gives them the name Yahweh, the Lord in our Bible translations. The Lord will be with you when you go back to the Israelites give them this name. But then there's a third objection. I I mentioned four objections. The first objection, who am I? Second objection, who are you? Second objection comes in chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, but suppose they do not believe me or listen to me, but say, the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh did not appear to you. So Moses' objection here is it won't work. It won't work. He's skeptical about whether this can he can pull this off. And, you know, that's that famous uh, place where the Lord says, okay, Moses, come over here. Throw your staff. What's, what's that in your hand? Well, Moses says it's a staff, and the Lord says throw it down on the ground. And so you know what happens there. It turns into a snake, and he gives them the power to pick it up. That's a command that we'd love to hear, right? Pick the snake up by the tail, right? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but he picked it up, and it became a staff again. By the way, the staff that Moses would later use, right, to turn water into blood and to part the Red Sea. I mean, that's that's indicative of his new occupation as a shepherd. But the Lord is going to transform. This is getting a little bit beyond this this idea of it won't work. But he transforms that that staff into an instrument of great and mighty acts of God to redeem his people. And then he says, put your hand in your garment. He pulls it out and it's leprous. It's, it's white as snow. Oh, that's a problem. We'll put it back in, and now it's healed. So these are like – we must resist the temptation to read these like tricks, but rather their confirmation that God will – this is what, what he means when he says, I will be with you. 
these are only a couple of little things compared to what God's going to do, these ten plagues, that proves his sovereignty over all the forces of nature of the whole cosmos, and that he will pull out all the stops and bring in all these plagues to deliver the Israelites from their bondage. So, Moses, you still want to say it won't work? Okay, maybe it will work. So then Moses moves to another objection. And Bill, slow me down if we're going to, if you're ready for another break, let me know. No, no, not yet. So, who am I? Who are you? It won't work. Then in verse 10, this is Exodus 4, verse 10. Moses says to the Lord Yahweh, Oh, my Lord, I have never been eloquent neither in the past nor even now that you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So now his refusal is, or his, his objection, his fourth objection is, I can't. So who am I? Who are you? It won't work. I can't. Now, these are objections. I would wager, if I were a betting man, that we have all used from time to time in our relationship with the Lord, right? Who am I to do this? Are you sure you know what you're doing? This is not going to work. I am not up to this. I can't do this. And of course, in this case, Moses sort of, or the Lord sort of says, Well, Moses, who created your mouth? Who created the power of speech? And oh, by the way, Aaron's going to come along and he'll help you. You don't know this, but he's already on his journey to meet you and he will help you in your speaking to Pharaoh. So the Lord has patiently answered every objection Moses has raised. And I would submit to you. And to your readers, that when God's calling you for whatever God's calling you to do, you can raise all the objections you want, and God will have answers for them. But the problem is not the matter of our mental objection to a task, but what happens next in verse 13 is not a simple objection, but rather a response of the will. We would call this a refusal. He simply says to the Lord, oh, my Lord. Please make someone else go. (laughs) Now, that's different. Now it's a matter of the will. His four objections have now become a refusal, and he says, I won't do it. Now, that's a problem, right? Right, guys? Have you ever tried that with the Lord? I mean, you can try that. You You can raise objections and ask for more information, ask for more power. Lord, what's this? what's this mean? How is this going to work? Uh, who's going to help me? But when you come to the point where you say, I won't do it, then you've opened up a whole nother can of worms. And the Lord sort of says, okay, now that you've opened that can of worms, we're going to eat them all. He says, <laughs> <laughs> he says in verse 14, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, what of your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he can speak He can speak fluently. Even now he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, his heart will be glad. So in a sense, the Lord says, okay, I've answered all of your objections. I've given you rational, reasonable uh, information, everything you need to know in your head. But now we have to deal with a heart issue. <laughs> so when Moses stops from making objections and says simply, I won't, then you've got another story, and God says essentially, oh, yes, you will. <laughs> and Aaron's already on his way to meet you, and off you go <laughs> to, do, to do what God's called you to do. And sometimes that's the way God needs to deal with all of us, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I mean by be prepared for surprises, because sometimes uh, – or 
the second lesson of this little study, no safe place away from God's call. There's no safer place than in the call of God. Wow, when we move from raising objections to a refusal of the heart, then that's that's a whole nother thing. Mm-hmm. Boy, Bill Arnold is both smart and funny. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate your affirmation of me. <laughs> I don't know whether to thank you or not. You know, I'm confused. <laughs> That's one of the nicest things you've said to me on air in a long, long time. A little schizophrenic right now. <laughs> yeah. Pipe, pipe down there, Bill. He's talking to me. Yeah. <laughs> I do feel like I have multiple personality disorder right now, I have to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll take a little break. Dr. Bill T. Arnold is our guest. He's a um, Old Testament professor at Asbury Theological Seminary. We're talking about Moses. We'll be right back. today with Dr. Bill T. Arnold. He's an uh, Old Testament professor at Asbury Theological Seminary. Bill, what uh, what are your parents' names? Mom and Dad. My mom and dad. Well, my, my father was Walter Lee Arnold. He was a pastor in the United Methodist Church. I was raised in the Methodist home. Nice. Uh, he went to heaven in 2015. He was my hero. Right. And my Beautiful. other hero was is my mother, who's Jean Clark Arnold. And I believe she's probably listening to this very important oh, that's very, uh, very program. <laughs> that's beautiful. That is awesome. Hi, Gene. It's Bill Arnold. Just wanted to say <laughs> hi. <laughs> yeah, it's your son. <laughs> it's your boy. <laughs> she's uh, also a, an inspiration for everything I do. So, yeah, it's great that she's listening. That's great. I think Peter, you had a follow-up question, didn't you? Yeah, I was just I was I was chewing on some of what you were saying before the break, uh, Bill T. Arnold, uh, in terms of just the, <laughs> the the differences between the objections that that God seemed to have some patience for to explain to Moses and, and help him understand, but this this act of will bit that seemed to prompt a different kind of response from God and. Is is that maybe just because somebody says no, I'm not going to align myself with where you're headed, kind of thing, versus just the, the 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 patience and the grace with which God answers our questions, versus us just flat saying no. I, I think that's right. I mean, there's a lot more to this in biblical theology, as you Peter, as you well know, uh, in and in Christian systematic theology. But just in the way this text tells the story. There's an amazing turn, the patience and grace with which God answers every objection that Moses raises. Uh, and then suddenly when he says, send somebody else, you know, when he, it's like picture Moses shrugging his shoulders and nodding or, or shaking his head and saying, no, send somebody else. You know, it's like I said at the beginning, who else has been prepared like Moses? I mean, nobody has had the preparation that Moses has had. So it, it's not as though God would say, "Well, let's see who else could there be." Uh, no, this is <laughs> this is Moses calling in life. This is what he was created to do, and this is the application for all of us, right? I mean, we've all been created to do something for God, to live in relationship with God, and we can't shrug our shoulders and say, "Well, I don't want to do that anymore." Uh, that's mm. a, that's problematic. So, and as you know, in the Bible, 
it always very often uh, portrays God as having human emotions and human features, and he has hands and a heart, and, you know, he's angry. And and there are times when God does get angry, and that's one of these right times when Moses says, I don't want to do this, and Moses, the Lord says, well, but you're going to. <laughs> so sometimes we need to hear that voice, too. Bill, maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, his transformation into the role of a prophet. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. I, too, was thinking during the break about the staff. I, I didn't mention, you know, he had a new occupation. That was part of his comfort zone. And that occupation was something the Egyptians absolutely hated. They did not like shepherds and sheep herding. They, they, it was beneath them. And you know this from the Joseph story. There's a fascinating passage there when Joseph is bringing his brothers back to Egypt, and he has a banquet, you know. And he's, the Egyptians it, were told, eat at a different room. They don't associate with Semitic uh, shepherds. And, you know, they just don't associate with them. They're, they're, you can read racism into that if you want. It probably is racism. It's certainly cultural bias. Uh, when the Israelites moved into the land of Goshen, Joseph sort of prepared Jacob to answer the Pharaoh's question, what do you do? Well, I, I tend sheep. Oh, perfect. You can take care of all my flocks because the Egyptians sure didn't want to, right? This, this, is, this is something beneath them. So when it talks about Moses having a staff out there on, the, on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai when he sees the burning bush, that symbolizes his new occupation, which is part of his comfort zone. He's no longer an Egyptian. He's now a Semitic shepherd. And the transformation of that staff it's just one symbol. The other thing that I'm just always shocked by was the transformation of Moses in one of his objections. I think it's objection three when he says, I can't. I'm not a good speaker. He says, I'm not eloquent. I've never been eloquent. I'm slow of speech, slow of tongue, right? And the Lord says, well, who created the mouth? Aaron will help you. I'm fascinated to read, and I'll invite your readers to, to scan through Exodus 5 to 15 to see how that changes, because at first he does, he and Aaron go into the Pharaoh, and Moses announces, let my people go. But it's just hardly a beat goes by before all of a sudden Moses is out there. I mean, he is courageously professing that this is what Pharaoh has to do. He has become a spokesman. He's kind of gotten over it, whatever that was that made him feel uh, in, incomplete, incompetent, in, unable to be a speaker, whatever that was is gone, and now he's speaking with boldness. And that culminates in a beautiful poem in Exodus 15, which we call the Song of Moses. <laughs> hmm. he, he's gone from an, a person who feels that he's not eloquent and he can't speak well to singing a song that is beautiful. You know, the horse and his rider, the Lord is thrown into the sea. It's a beautiful poem. Uh, Put on the mouth of Moses, and so now you know he's gotten over whatever that that problem was. But then there's more. There's a story, a little story in Deuteronomy five. I'll invite your readers to do that sometime this week. It's not in the Exodus parallel passages, but in Deuteronomy five, at the end of that chapter, after the Ten Commandments have been given, a fascinating thing is told to us. It's rehearsing that. The Lord spoke out of the fire, and Peter was just asking about that a few moments ago. He spoke out of the fire. He pronounced the ten words, which it says are the covenant itself. And it says, when the people heard the voice of God, 
they heard the voice of God out of the darkness, which is interesting because it's fire too, right? I mean, it's, it's just smoking, smoking <laughs> darkness and fire. Uh, and they hear that voice, and I've always wondered. I'm not sure they actually heard distinct audible words. It might have just been like like a overpowering trumpet blast, or we don't know what the sound of God's voice was to the Israelites. But they say to Moses, "Oh, now that we've discovered." that the living God can speak, and we've survived, that's good. But we will not survive it again. This will surely not happen again. We will die if he ever speaks to us this way again. So they say to him, Moses, you be our spokesman. They want him to speak God's words, and they say something fascinating there, something that you know doesn't happen very often in the Old Testament. They say to him, you hear everything the Lord says to you. You tell it to us, and we'll do it. Let the Lord tell you what he wants. You tell us, and we will certainly do it. Like it's, it's beautiful. That'll work. And a fascinating thing happens. God says to Moses, that's a good idea. I think we can work with that. And he says, Moses, you'll be my spokesperson. So this this man who at the burning bush at Mount Sinai said, oh, I can't do that. I'm not a good speaker. Well, he, to the point where he could march into Pharaoh's royal audience and say whatever he pleased, you know, he could pronounce whatever he wanted. And then the people say, we want you to speak for God. And Moses says, okay, I'll speak for God. By the way, before I forget, I need to also say later on in the book of Deuteronomy, the, the passage, there's a passage in 18 that says, there will come a future prophet like Moses. The ideal prophet who represents God's will for the whole world will be a prophet like Moses. And, of course, that's anticipating Jesus. It's anticipating a, a line of prophets in the Old Testament. But, of course, it culminates, too, in Jesus, right? And then, of course, at the end of the whole Pentateuch, when it's describing the death of Moses, what does it say? No prophet like Moses has ever come along again, nor will there ever be a prophet, prophet like Moses. I mean, he became a spokesman par excellence, but, you know, he was this little guy with a shepherd's staff saying, oh, I'm not a good speaker. I can't do this, God. And God said, let's see what you can do. You know, with my help, I'll be with you. <laughs> you and I together can do anything. Well, we only just have a couple minutes left, so maybe this is just something we can kind of touch on. But could you speak maybe to Moses's enduring legacy in terms of as we trace it into the New Testament, we see him show up in the Sermon on the Mount, among many other places, too. But but clearly, Jesus was referencing Moses and some of what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Wow. Now now you've asked the, the huge question, haven't you? And how Christians read the Old Testament has sort of been the, the touchstone of problems through the Church's history. It's a critical question mm -hmm. for all of us. I, I would just—I know we're running out of time, but I would think Jesus came to fulfill the law. He said that in the Sermon on the Mount. He comes to fill it full, not to place it aside, not to replace it, but to fulfill it there means that he fills it full of new meaning. So he didn't, he didn't set the, the law aside or Moses aside at all. It doesn't contradict something that it meant then, but he up, Jesus updated it and revived it for a new, a new era for the church. So just I think as a closing comment, I would say Christians – and I'm, I hope this will be helpful for your audience, need to stop thinking of Moses as the law. There's a lot in the New Testament about this, but the, the New Testament uses the word law in two different ways. One's bad and one's good. 
uh, in the Old Testament, the word law is always good, and it's not what you and I think of when we think of law. It is Torah, which is instruction. If you want to get in your life from point A to point B, or where God wants you to be, God, A is where you are now, B is where God wants you to be, how do you get there? You get there through Torah. Torah is instruction. It isn't law. It's hmm. instruction. It's instruction for holy living. It's instruction for covenant living, instruction for life with God. So Moses' law is wisdom for living. It's didactic. It's instructional. Um, there, there's more we could say about this. You know, we, you and I, I think, all have statutory law in our minds, which is a relatively new thing, a code of law that we all have to have enforced in our culture, in all the Western cultures, by a police society that enforces law and judicial courts. None of that is what the Old Testament law is about. <laughs> yeah. mm. It's about instruction. <laughs> the last thing I want to do is cut Bill Arnold off. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> that is the last thing <laughs> I want to do. Which, which one? Which <laughs> one? We're kind of out of time, but, Bill, it's really been a delight. Uh, when is your birthday, by the way? Just curious. September 1st. <laughs> okay, good. I'm April 1st, just so you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, All Bill, right. well, Bill Arnold's are only born on the first day of the month. All right. Thank there you so you much. And I want to say hi to your mom, Mrs. Arnold. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed your son, Bill. Um, and Bill Arnold, you're welcome to come back on the Bill Arnold Show anytime you like, okay? You guys are right. doing great work. All right. God thank, bless you. Thank you so much. That's all the show we have for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Have a great night, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.